Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Gospel record of Mark. The Gospel record of Mark and chapter number 9. The Gospel record of Mark and chapter number 9. We're continuing to press forward within this series of the Gospel record of Mark. And we've been walking through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as recorded in this Gospel record of Mark. Noticing that this Gospel record is the Gospel record of action. It shows Jesus continually in action as he's moving from one event to another. It doesn't cover a lot of his discourses, but it shows his interaction, especially towards the middle part and the end of the Gospel record record of Mark, we could see a lot that Jesus is working with his disciples. Now we know that he preaches with a crowd, but he's working with these disciples. Now of course the gospel record of Mark is written from Peter's perspective, and Peter was in the midst of a lot of these discussions and a lot of these failings. And we're going to see this recorded here in the gospel record of Mark chapter number 9. And if you wouldn't mind, pick it up with me, starting at verse number 30. The gospel record of Mark chapter 9. And notice with me, starting at verse number 30. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto him, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after he is killed, he shall rise again the third day. But they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. And he came unto Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it? that ye disputed among yourselves by the way. But they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followed not us. And we forbade him, because he followed not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it would be better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It would be better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, and into fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It be better for thee to halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It be better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good. 
But if the salt had lost its saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. And if you have the marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the gospel record of Mark chapter number nine? The gospel record of Mark chapter number nine, and notice with me in verse number 31. Mark 9, 31, notice the beginning phrase, he taught his disciples. He taught his disciples. And with the Lord's help, we want to see this, what he's teaching his disciples, what he taught his disciples. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. A God who indeed is worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be served. And we are thankful for whom you are. And as you take time to teach your followers, your disciples, we're asking that you would help us. That if it was important for your disciples to know these things, as we have a desire to be followers of you, it is important for us to know these as well. Give us wisdom, give us clarity, give us discernment that we can understand what you are teaching. We can understand what you are getting across. We can understand the emphasis that you placed upon these things. Again, fill me with your Holy Spirit so that way it is you and your work getting across, not mine. I die to my desire, my ambitions, my goals, whatever I want to get accomplished, and I want it to be your way because your way is perfect. Again, thank you for hearing us when we pray and the expectation that you'll answer these things. And in your name we pray. Amen. So as Jesus is continuing to teach his disciples, he's been mentioning things over and over and over, and he's been trying to get them across. And the first thing I'd like to show you as he's teaching his disciples is the delivering of the Son of Man. The delivering of the Son of Man. Now one of the things I almost thought about doing in this series is to record how many times Jesus taught this same thing to his disciples and they still didn't understand. Notice with me, if you don't mind, as he begins to teach them in verse number 30. And they, this is Jesus and his disciples, departed thence and passed into Galilee and he would not that any man should know it. Again, right now it's putting emphasis that he's trying to spend time with his disciples to teach his disciples and not the masses. So now we know the context. Remember that Jesus had messages he taught to the context, to the masses. There was messages he had to the Pharisees. Then there were some messages he had just for the disciples. And as we're entering into the last part of this chapter here, we could see these are messages he's talking to the disciples and not the masses. So what is it that Jesus is getting across? Notice again as he continues in verse 31. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Now, Jesus has taught this same thing over and over and over. We've watched this in the previous chapters. Again, we almost needed to do a count of how many times this is. This is at least three, if not more, that is recorded in Scripture just in the Gospel record of Mark. And so he says, boys, I want you to know that I'm going to go to Jerusalem. When I go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me. They're going to put me to death. But don't worry about it. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. You can't get any plainer than this. Someone once told me that plain talk is easily understood. Well, Jesus says, I am going to go to Jerusalem. They are going to arrest me. I am going to die. And then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. But notice the reaction to this, verse 32. But they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, they're like, what does he mean by that? What do you think he means by that? Well, he said he's going to get arrested. And then he's going to die. And then he's going to rise again. What does he mean by that? What does it sound like he means by that? Well, surely he can't mean that he's going to really die. Isn't it figurative death? Is it just going to, you know, he's going to die of reputation? What, what, what is this? What did Jesus say? You know, the one thing about God is that he's smart. How many of you know that? He's smart. All right? 
How many of you know that God understands language? Okay, God understands language. Do you think that God ever gets to the place where he says, I have something in mind. There's a word that I'm trying to think of. And I just, it just can't come out. Do you think, I know we do that from time to time, but do you think ever God has ever had that brain stump where, you know, I can't put the right word? God has always had the right words. You know, when God said, let there be light, do you think he had to think about, I, what is that bright, shiny thing? God is smart enough to say what he means and mean what he says then why are the disciples having a hard time accepting what Jesus plainly said? Well, the same reason why everyone else has a hard time accepting what Jesus plainly said. They don't want to believe it. How would you like for your boss to come to you and say, oh, let me tell you something. I'm going to die soon. Would that be good news to you? Your parents came up to you and said, I'm going to die soon. Better not use the boss. Some of you might agree with that. All right. Well, a family member. I'm going to die soon. Well, is that good news? I mean, unless you have an issue with a family member. I'm running out of illustrations. All right. <laughs> but um, for the disciples, they love Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to die. Because they did not want to accept it, they went to the default. I don't know what he means. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again the third day. What does that mean? What did he say? Again, he's not beating around the bush. He's not using language. He's not doing a roundabout. This is very plain speak. And he's used this same idea, the same words over and over and over. But now they're at the place where they're afraid to ask. Why are they afraid to ask? Because they're afraid of the response. They don't want to get it clarified. Again, why don't people want to clarify what the Bible says? Because they don't want to. They're having a hard time. They're having a difficulty with. And so Jesus is teaching the disciples and he's telling them plainly and clearly what is going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I am going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. You know, they never did catch it. How do you know? Because during those three days, where were the disciples at? Boo-hooing and crying in a great depression because everything is over. They should have been celebrating. Hey, you remember what Jesus said? He said he was going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to be arrested. And he was going to die. Did that happen? Yes. But guess what? He also said he was going to rise again. We should be waiting and just anticipating. But they were not. Why? Because they didn't understand. They didn't get clarification. They didn't try to get this fixed. They just looked at him and nodded their head and, uh-huh, I think I know what you're saying. What is he saying? But they looked at him. So it's nice to know that the disciples are normal students. He's tried to teach them and he's brought this over and over and over. He's explained it to them and explained it. He's spoken clearly to them. And they won't catch him. But yet this is so important of what's going to happen. They had the warning. They were told a year or so in advance what was going to happen. And yet they had a hard time understanding it. But Jesus is continuing to teach them. Since they didn't want to talk about this subject, Jesus switched subjects and began to ask them some questions. So we start by del the delivering of the Son of Man but the next subject that Jesus teaches the disciples was the disputing of who was first. The disputing of who was first. Notice with me in verse 33. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them. So Jesus asked the disciples, what was it that ye disputed among yourselves, by the way? Now again, I brought this up in a couple of sermons ago. But the disciples would often talk among themselves as Jesus was walking. And they would talk among themselves, and it's almost as if they don't think Jesus can hear them. And they talk about this all the time. Now, Jesus calls them out. Again, I could see a classroom setting. He's got the disciples, and it's almost like a bunch of 7th and 8th graders who talk all the time. And they assume the teacher can't hear them, even though the teacher's staring at them. What are they talking about? Well, they're afraid to say anything 
what was it that you guys were disputing? Now that word disputing means arguing. That sounds like a bunch of seventh graders. They're fighting amongst themselves and they're not quiet about it either. What was it that you disputed? You're arguing, you're fighting among yourselves, by the way. So as they're traveling, the disciples are all together bickering and fighting with each other as Jesus is walking. And Jesus pulls around and says, hey, back there when we were walking, what were you guys fighting about? And their answer is a typical seventh grade answer. But they held their peace. I didn't say anything. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> wasn't me. I wasn't talking. Wasn't fighting. Well, no, I don't know. Again, I guess they assume the teacher's deaf, like most seventh graders. But notice this. But they held their peace for, by the way, they disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Now, Jesus has been teaching about the upcoming kingdom of God. He's been telling them about the millennial kingdom that Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom. And so what they did is they started going, hey... We're his followers. We follow him everywhere. He's chosen us. So in the millennial kingdom, in the kingdom that Jesus sets up, one of us is going to be greatest. I'm going to be better than you. Nuh-uh, I do this for Jesus. Nuh-uh, I do this. And so they start fighting among themselves about who is going to be the greatest one of the disciples when it's all said and done. So you can imagine Peter, who's the leader of the group, saying, no, boys, I'm in charge me. Maybe you think of, um, of uh, Judas Iscariot, who was part of the outside group. Remember, when Jesus went to the Mount of Transfiguration, he didn't bring all 12. He brought three, Peter, James, and John. Maybe Judas says, teachers, pets, hey, you're not better than us. <laughs> what about the rest of us? We do all the work. I have to keep all the money. I'm the best over here. I do this where you goes on field trips and stuff. I'm the one that's, maybe they're fighting among themselves. They've been arguing who's going to be the greatest. And they're all coming up with reasons why they're going to be greatest. Or maybe uh, James is pointing to his brother John and said, Nah, this is the son of thunder. Jesus likes him. He's, he loves him best. Maybe the disciples are factioning off. But this is the argument they have. Out of all the things Jesus has been teaching them about the upcoming kingdom, about Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to die, he's going to rise again, they pick the subject of talking about who's going to be better than everyone else. Sounds like some, a bunch of seventh graders. And they're arguing and fighting as if Jesus doesn't hear them. So finally they get to the place they're staying and Jesus says, hey boys, what are you guys fighting about back there? I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus knew what they were fighting about. They were fighting about who was going to be better than the rest of them. So Jesus begins to correct this behavior too. Notice with him in verse number 35. And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and a servant of all. Jesus taught them that being great was not in accomplishments. Listen to me. Being great is not in accomplishments. Look at what I did. Look at how strong I am. Look at what I did here. To be the greatest of all is who was the greatest servant. Who was the greatest servant? You know that it's human ambition that when we look at what's great, we look at someone that at what's been accomplished. What Jesus sees as great is the person who's willing to serve others and put others ahead of them. That's backwards. Our normal thinking is me, 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 me. In fact, if you look at our world now, no wonder it is called the me generation. It's me, 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 me. This is why in our country now that they could put such an emphasis on fear because people are concerned about me. And they could turn up the fear because they see themselves. Jesus says, it's not about you. Get that out of your mind. If you truly want to be the greatest, then the measure of greatness is not what you accomplish, not the biggest mountain you can climb, not the greatest dragon you can slay. It's who is the greatest 
servant. And you know there's something about a servant is that the servant doesn't get recognition. The servant doesn't do it for applause. The servant just sees something that needs to be done and does it. You know what a servant does? A servant sees a piece of trash laying on the floor and he picks it up instead of walks over it. A servant looks for a reason, looks for something to do. And by the way, may I also remind you of this? What is the only job of a servant? Don't say it out loud because you don't want to get it wrong. What is the only job of a servant? It is not to serve. The only job of a servant is to obey. And so if the master tells the servant to stand there, if he does something other than stand there, he's disobedient. He's not a good servant. You know what makes us the greatest in Jesus' mind? How well you're willing to obey. You know there's a preparation for obedience. You have to prepare to obey. You have to listen to obey. Do you know that there's sometimes leadership gives a command in the form of a suggestion? Instead of, you go pick this up, they may say something. It'd be nice if that was taken care of. And because it wasn't pointed out that you take care of this, Someone says, must be talking about someone else. That'd be nice if someone took care of that. You know what a servant does? Hey, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to get it done. This is what Jesus is putting emphasis on. It's how well you obey. How well you serve. How well you do those things that are giving you to do. Practical application. Has leadership given you something to do? And you looked at him and said, I'll think about that. Are you a good servant? Not according to this. Who's the greatest? The one that's willing to obey. Preparing to obey. Now, this isn't my qualifications. This isn't what I'm saying. This is not me at all. Jesus is teaching his disciples. They just got through arguing. Who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus said, I want to tell you who's going to be the greatest. Whoever's the most obedient. Whoever's prepared to obey. Who's ever says yes to Jesus all the time? That's the greatest. And the disciples probably have the same faces that you have now. Hmm. Hmm. A little bit uncomfortable. A little bit different. Hmm. That's not what I want to hear. We all like the idea of accomplishments. In fact, a lot of us would love to have that one great accomplishment that we could just refer to the rest of our life and just get it done and over with. Hey, I did this. It was 20 years ago, but that's how come I'm great. That's what we like to do. Do that one thing, get it over and done with, and write out the rest of our life in ease. But Jesus said, if you're going to be the greatest, you're going to be the one that's most prepared to obey. And to serve all the time. Every time. That makes us uncomfortable because that's against what we want. But Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's working with them. I don't know if we're in good company or bad company, but that's the company we have. Jesus is speaking to us with the same message that he talked to his disciples. That they were fighting about who is greatest. Then Jesus did something different. Notice this in verse 36. And he, that's Jesus, took a child and set him, the child in the midst of them. So the disciples are surrounding about. He grabs a child and says, come here. And he puts the child in front of all the disciples. And when he had taken him in his arms, so you can imagine Jesus just hugging the child, just loving on him. And he says, boys, whosoever shall receive of such children in my name receiveth me. He says, if you really want to be a blessing, serve children. You know why this is opposite of us? Because adults are the ones that we can get favors from. If we do something for an adult, they may obligate it to pat us on the back, thank us. But you do something for a child, they're not necessarily thankful. And you may not get a reward from it. You may not get the praise from it. But Jesus said, if you invest in them, if you work on their faith, if you encourage them, that's what you should be doing. 
to be encouraging their faith, to teach them the word of God, to teach them how to follow after God. Those are the hardest classes to teach. But those are the necessary. He says, teaching these children, it's those little things that God is looking for. Those little things that make you a good servant, good obedient. Not doing it for the pat on the back. Notice as he goes on in verse 37. For whosoever shall receive one of these such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receive not me. Or meaning not me alone. But him that sent me. Who is that? God. That if you want to be pleasing to God. You make yourself a servant. Even if it's such a thing as children. Not doing it for the accolades. Not doing it for this. But doing it for the idea that I'm pleasing God and I'm investing. I'm working. I'm making myself a servant. I'm not trying to get the pat on the back. I'm not trying to get the accolades. I'm just trying to serve others. And if you serve things like children and teach children and they grow up serving God, that's it. That's it. You never know what an influence a Sunday school teacher will make. Some of you may be familiar with Dr. Lee Robertson. Dr. Lee Robertson was, um, grew up in the hollows uh, in our country. Now, later on, he, he uh, was a great preacher, uh, sent 1,000 plus thousands of people from his, the Bible college he had there that are serving around the world, even some of them to this day. But you know how he came to know the Lord? He had a Sunday school teacher by the name of Daisy Hawes who took a little Sunday school kid who was nothing but overalls, no shirt or no shoes and taught him Jesus Christ. And it changed his life. And whereas Daisy Hawes never pastored a great church and never sent out missionaries, she has eternal rewards because she invested in a child. And God used that child. This is what Jesus is putting emphasis on. Be a servant. And be a servant to those that may not get you ahead in life, but those that you can invest in and that can be used of God. Which now brings us to another subject. Again, he's teaching these disciples and he's teaching them different subjects. He started off by talking about that Jesus Christ is going to be delivered and that what is going to happen to Jesus. Then he began to uh, cover this idea of the disputing who, who was first. And he began to try to change their thinking about this. That who was the greatest was the one who was the obedient servant. And was willing to serve others that weren't going to get them ahead. Or be able to help them out. But serving those even like little children. And then we come to this one. The devils that were cast out. The devils that were cast out. Now John now asked a question in verse 38. And John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. And he followed not us. And we forbade him because he followed not us. Now John brought up this question about this guy that they saw that was casting out demons. But the thing was is that they were not traveling with Jesus. They didn't travel with uh, the disciples. And he says, what about that guy over there? Now we told him, don't do that. Don't you cast out demons anymore. Don't you mess with that. You say, what, what's the issue with this? Well, notice the words that John said in verse 38. John answered him and saying, Master, we saw one that casting out devils in thy name, and he followed not us. And we forbade him, and he followed not us. You know what the problem was? The problem was not that this guy wasn't following Christ. He wasn't following us. Do you know that there are people out there that are doing the best they can with the light that they have? And they may not dot the I's and cross the T's, but they're honestly trying to do their best for the Lord. If they're not trying to hurt us, why spend time fighting against them? Be an encouragement, point him to the Lord. But as for us, mind our own business. Brother Summerdorf taught this principle. Mind your own business. Don't worry about what someone else is doing in their own lawn. You have enough work taking care of your own. Mind your own business. If they're not fighting against you, leave them alone. 
pray for them, be an encouragement, try to be an influence. I have preachers that don't believe like I do, that I try to be a help to. I'll take them out to lunch. Does that mean I'm compromising? No, I'm trying to build an influence with them, trying to be a help to them, trying to be an encouragement to them. Doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to believe what they believe, but if I could help point them up to the Lord, if I could be an encouragement, there are plenty of lost people for everyone. There are plenty of things to do. But this is an important thing because we get in our minds, all of us, no matter what circle you travel with and whatever else, that they have to do it this way or they're wrong, bless God. Well, I understand I'm different. And I do things different. Does that mean that I'm wrong and I'm destined to hell and I'm leading everyone? No, I'm trying to do the best we can with what we have. Let me give a good example. With the churches now reopening Everyone has a different idea of how things to do. How do we do things and do things safely? Well, that's going to be up to every pastor, knowing the congregation, knowing where they're at, the safety and the levels and whatnot, and what to put in plan. And we may do something different than some church in Tennessee. We may do something different than some church in California. They may have more restrictions. They may do more things. Does that mean we're wrong and they're right? Or they're wrong and we're right? No, it means that we're just trying to follow after God. You know what this does? This eliminates a lot of fights. That if someone doesn't cross the I or dot the I and cross the T the same exact way that we do, we don't have to go to war with them. We can allow them to follow after God and God can do a better job fixing them than what we can. Can you trust God? This eliminates so many things. You know what one of the biggest problems we have in modern Christianity is Christians fighting other Christians. And we're not concentrating on the real enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We don't have to go to war with every other person. And I don't have to be mean to every other person that doesn't quite believe like we do. We just point them up to God and allow God to work with them. I can trust God to work on someone's life. I can trust God to fix them. I don't have to go corral everybody else's sheep. I don't have to go fix every problem that someone else has. I could point them to God. In fact, may I say this? This is helpful. It sounds weird. It's all right to let them be wrong. It's fine to let them be wrong. There are many times that someone may not be teachable, but they tell me something that I disagree with, and I nod my head. I don't have to correct them. Especially if they're not teachable, all it's going to do is cause friction. I could be patient and allow God to work with them. I can trust God. That's the principle that we're seeing here. If they're not against us, then we'll let God deal with them. Now, if they're against us, that's a different subject. But just because they're a little bit different than us, they may do something different. They may put their songs up on the screen. It may not be something that I agree with, but I don't have to go fight with them. They may take offering different. We don't have to fight with them. Can we just look to God, mind our own business, and don't have to fight with them? That's what Jesus is talking about with him. And the problem that we see here is that they're not following us. People don't have to follow us, but they need to follow God. And as long as they're following God, we could trust them. Notice this. Jesus answers this in verse number uh, 39. But Jesus said, forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that could speak light, lightly speak evil of me. All right, so if the guy's not cursing Jesus, let him alone. Let him go. For he that is not against us is on our part or on our side. We can trust him. But then Jesus continues with this. John asked him a question. Jesus answered the question. And now he's going to teach more on that. He's going to tie in these teachings together what he just said. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ. Verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Now, here we're coming to the idea of rewards. This is going to be talking about the millennial kingdom and when we face God for judgment. That if someone gives me something as simple as a cool glass of water just because I'm a Christian, 
because I'm trying to serve God. They may not agree with me. They may not, we may not have the same dots of the I and the crossing of the T, but they're doing it because I'm a Christian. God says they have a reward and it's not going to go away. Practical application. We're going door knocking. We're telling people about Jesus Christ, passing out a track, witnessing to someone. And someone comes out and says, I'm so glad that you're doing that. I go to the church down the street and so, but I'm so glad you're doing that. Can I get you some water? It's a hot day. They're doing it because I'm a Christian and because I'm trying to do something. They may not go to the same church that I do or even have the same circle, but because they're doing it because I'm a Christian, they've got a reward. And they're going to see it in the millennial kingdom as part of the reward. You know what we see here? Is that God sees every little thing that we do. And he watches it. And it does matter the little things that we do. It does matter how we treat others. We can encourage people. And God watches that. We need to be encouragers. Now again, he's teaching his disciples because these are going to be the leaders of the church. These are going to be the people that are going to set the tone. And he wants to train them up right that you don't have to fight against every single person. There's enough people that are against you. We don't have to go look for a fight. Just be a blessing to people. Be, don't have to fix every little problem that they have with their doctrine and with their theology. Point them up to God, encourage them, allow God to work with them. This is great teaching. This is, this is needed teaching for this day and time. Point them up to God. They don't have to agree with us every little thing. But how can you be an encourager? How can you be a blessing? But then he switches subjects again. And he begins to teach one last thing here with the disciples. There's a death to be avoided. There's a death to be avoided. Notice with me in verse 42. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones. Now remember, Jesus still has this child here. And he says, hey, let's go back to the subject I was talking about. Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones. This word offend carries the idea to cause to stumble. To make them stumble on their faith. To teach them to doubt God and that who God is. If whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that he believeth in me... It were better for him that a millstone be hung around his neck and were cast into the sea. Now, this is a hard warning. And this is a warning that's going to apply to a lot more people than you think. It's, do you know that no one believes in evolution by themselves? They are taught that. Some teacher teaches them. Some book they read influences them. Something like millions and millions of years ago. And it causes a child to doubt their faith in God. And then that doubt is built upon until they no longer believe in God. Do you know that every child is born with an innate sense that there is a God? Every child believes that there is a God. They have to be taught that there's not a God. They have to be taught not to trust in Him. Every child is naturally programmed in that way. But when someone takes the time to influence or to teach a child that God is not real, God says that person is in trouble with God. In fact, this is a hard punishment. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones, it were better for him. Meaning that, remember we have in math, you have the greater than, less than. He says the, the symbol is going to be opened at this end. It would be better for him if they took a millstone. A millstone is like an anchor. If you took an anchor, put it around the guy's neck, and put him in the depth of the sea, that's going to be better than what I have in store for that person. Now, if we talk about greater than or less than, no one wants to say, hey, I know what a great idea today. I'm going to put an anchor, a big, huge 200-pound uh, anchor. I'm going to put it around my neck, and then I'm going to go jump in the pool. That's not a good thing. It's not something we encourage. But God says, that's going to be better if that happened to them, then what's going to happen when I get a hold of them? If you discourage or teach some little kid not to trust in God, to teach him that God doesn't answer prayers, to teach him that God doesn't care about you, to teach him that God isn't real, that's some dangerous things. No wonder he's putting a big emphasis earlier that you need to teach children and teach them to trust in God. That's going to be better 
than to have someone who discourages a child or discourages them from following after God. Even something as simple as this. Some child who doesn't know any better re- having a hymn book and singing at the top of their lungs off key. And someone says, that's nice singing. Do you think you could tone it down? To discourage a child from doing such a thing hurts their faith. Hurts their walk with God. You understand this is serious things. And God is now saying it's the little things that matter. Handing a cup of water to someone just because they're a Christian. That's a little thing that matters. Taking a little child and saying you don't trust in God. You don't need to trust in God. That's a little thing that matters. And God is saying let me tell you. Now that we're talking about the subject. Let me tell you what is worse than putting a anchor and throwing someone in the depth of the sea. Let me tell you what is worse. Verse number 43. And if thy hand offend thee or cause thee to stumble. So if your hand keeps getting you in trouble and makes you where you don't trust in God. Now he's speaking an idea that he's comparing. He's not teaching you that in order to be right with God, you need to cut your hand off or pluck out your eye. I'm still waiting for that cult to show up. The guys with one eyes. And says that in order to be right with God, you got to pluck out your eye. Now, it's not what he's teaching, and he's never going to teach that. But he's trying to give an illustration here that if your hand is the reason why you won't trust in God, it'd be better to cut off your hand and trust in God and go into eternal life with one hand. By the way, God can fix that. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. For it better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell. Notice that word hell. Into a fire that should never be quenched. Now the word hell here is very interesting. It is the word Gehenna, which is an actual location outside of Jerusalem. Now in the ancient world, they didn't have such a thing called waste management. And for a city that's been there for a thousand, two thousand years, one thing that you usually don't think about is logistics is what do you do with the waste? What do you do with the garbage? I mean, How many of you could stand for the garbage truck not to arrive at your place for a month? What would happen? That would be a problem. So what happened outside of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is built on a hill and it's surrounded by valleys. And one of the valleys that they have um, is the Valley of Gehenna. And after a while, they started throwing up trash and throwing trash and throwing trash. Well, that's nice. But what would happen if nothing ever happens to the trash? And the town is there for thousands of years. It builds up. So what happened is that during the reign of the kings, they lit the trash on fire. And it became a place where there was so much trash and so much trash getting thrown into there. It was the place where the fire dieth not. It was the place where the worm never died. So you could go to it. And there was times that Jesus did this. Someone said, what is hell like? And Jesus said, come with me. Gehenna. Look at this valley. That is what it is like. It is a place where the smoke is going up. It's the place where the fire is always going around the clock. You can look and see the little maggots and the worms crawling around eating the leftover garbage. And he says that. If you want something in your mind, a visual representation, what is it like? That. Now, if hell was not a place of fire... Don't you think Jesus, who was smart and knew how to use words, would have pointed to something else? He could have said, that's the grave. That's it. That's all it is. That's not what he did. They said, what is hell like? He said, Gehenna. Hell. The place where the fire never stops. The place where the worm never dies. You want to know what's worse than having your um, (coughs) neck tied with an anchor and thrown in the water? He says, that, that. He says, avoid that. You don't have to go to that. And he could point to a literal location where they could see with their own eyes and get a vision. Wouldn't that be a powerful image? To be able to see a place where fire, this huge valley on fire as far as you can see. And to see the worms crawling around. To see the garbage in there. To smell the smoke and the things burning. And say that 
is what you're trying to avoid. That is where you don't want to go. That, if that is where you're headed and your hand is the one that's sending you there, it'd be better for you to get rid of that hand and not go there. That is bad. Plain speak is easily understood. Don't do that. If it's your eye that's going to keep you from going there, get rid of it. Get rid of whatever it takes so you don't have to go there. 44, uh, verse 43. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It'd be better for thee to enter into life maimed than have two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. If thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than have two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. If thy I offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. May I remind you that God is smart enough with words to say what he means and to mean what he says? He says, this is what I mean when I say hell. Look at this. The fire doesn't stop. The worm doesn't quench. Verse number 49, for everyone shall be salted. Now it sounds like, Different. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Now, what is he talking about here? This is a reference to the Old Testament laws that they had five different sacrifices. And every sacrifice was to have one ingredient common, salt. Every one of them was to have salt. Salt is a preservative, not a cure. But salt has a purpose. In fact, there are thousands of uh, purposes for salts. In fact, whole entire wars have been fought for salt. There were times that the Roman Empire used salt as currency. It has been that important. And yet God says, I want every sacrifice to be seasoned with salt. And then verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, where or when shall you season Have salt in yourself and peace with one another. Jesus uses this illustration of salt. That we are the salt of the earth. We're the ones that are supposed to be used in the earth to help preserve what we have. It does not a curative. It preserves what we have. But if the salt no longer has a purpose, you know what? You just cast it to be trodden underfoot. It has no purpose for it if it's no longer useful. We need to be useful and be used to preserve the things in the world. To be used of God to be a sacrifice. Again, he is turned from the disciples. He says, avoid this. But let me tell you what you should be. You should be the salt. And you should be preparing and preserving what we have. And trying to keep people from avoiding this. You need to be useful. Now, again, tying this all together. What is Christ trying to get across to them? That they have a responsibility to be a servant. And the only job of a servant is to obey. If a servant no longer obeys, he is no longer useful. It is a poor servant. Jesus then reminds them, you are supposed to be salt. And if you're no longer salty, if you're no longer useful, then you're no good. He's trying to teach the disciples something based off of their argument before. Who's going to be the greatest? He says, let me tell you, it's the little things that matters. The most important thing you could do is not to climb a mountain, not to slay a dragon. It's to be obedient. Boys, I'm trying to tell you, be obedient. Don't worry about these other things. Don't worry about what they're doing. You worry about yourself and be obedient. And so, what is the message that Christ has for us? Has it changed? No. Our job is to be useful. How are we useful? As we are good servants. How are we good servants? As we're obedient. We don't need to worry about what someone else is doing. Worry about yourself. Are you obedient? Don't worry about someone else's salty level. You be obedient. Serve God. It's the little things that matter. He noticed all those little things. Just be obedient. Let God take care of the rewards. Let God take care of who's in charge. Let God take care of who is teaching what. You just worry about yourself and stay useful. How are we useful? As well as we are obedient to God and as good servants.
So the question for you, how useful are you? How salty are you? Are you someone that's prepared to be obedient to what God's given you to do? Or are you, like my brother says, have to be whacked by a two by four across the head repeatedly before he gets your attention? It is best to be prepared to be obedient, to be prepared to say yes to whatever God gives you to do and to look forward to what God is supposed to do. One of my favorite illustrations in the Bible is in 1 Samuel chapter 3 where it's talking about Samuel and the reputation that he had is he didn't let a single word of God fall to the ground. It's almost like a picture of a fruit tree, an apple tree. And as the apple's falling from the tree, he would be ready for the basket and he's looking forward to trying to grab it. And he didn't let a single word of God hit the ground. With that illustration, how much of the word of God is piling up around you? That you hold out your basket. If it falls right here, I'm good. Or are you prepared to capture God's word and be obedient to do something with what God has given you to do? What we're talking about today is more of a preparation than necessarily an action. Are you prepared to obey God's word? Are you looking forward to obeying God's word? Or is it something that, well, if it falls in my lap and I'm forced to, I'll do it. How is your servanthood towards God? Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you could give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three oh eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three oh eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.